This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. Daniel Walters is a journalist who has been covering extremists in the Pacific Northwest for over a decade. He has written about people like Matt Shea, the Proud Boys, and his latest piece is a breakdown of the conspiracy to riot trial of the members of Patriot Front in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm lucky to have him on the podcast today. Stick around. Daniel, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Yeah, I appreciate it. So you cover extremists in the Pacific Northwest quite extensively. How did you find yourself on this beat? Yeah, I mean, I think I started, I was at the Inlander for a while. Um, I'd started the Inlander, the uh, it's kind of the alt-weekly in Spokane, Washington, a little right. bit like the, like if the stranger was mainstream and didn't really use profanity. <laughs> it's kind of the, what the Inlander's like. So yeah, I was, I was the, you know, kind of there as a, ever since I was an intern in 2008, straight out of Whitworth University. Ooh. And, and I had been on the education reporting beat for a while, and then I ended up getting, um, Around 2015, uh, you know, kind of around, um, I ended up getting assigned to uh, cover this guy named uh, Representative Matt Shea. Oh, right. A Spokane Valley representative who was continually landing himself in a controversy after controversy. Um, probably most famously ended up pulling a gun, um, kind of brandishing a gun and showing his uh, unlicensed firearm during a, a road rage altercation. And so he had been, you know, kind of continually in these moments of controversy and we kind of dug into more and learned he was kind of more a part of this, what experts call the the militia movement or the patriot movement. Right. Kind of this um, anti-government kind of libertarian prepper kind of world where he's, um, you know, giving speech, these kind of inspirational speeches about how, you know, the, the government is, is heading for collapse. But when you do, you're going to be the hero because you're going to have all of these rounds of ammunition. You're going to be stocked up and you're going to have all these canned goods. And you're going to be the one that's going to be protect your family or your neighborhood for, from the outside world. Right. And kind of, and so, so a lot of it was just, I kind of ended up getting pretty deep into that. I wrote a cover story on the long running kind of feud between the, um, local uh, cantankerous opinionated sheriff, Ozzy Knezovich and Shea. And right. both of them were pretty conservative, but Ozzy's coming from like kind of the law and order, you know, don't screw around kind of conservatism where Shea was coming from that religious, what I later would call um, Christian nationalism, kind of libertarianism, so, sort of infused movement. And right. so kind of that, that real crisis and, what the sheriff saw as a real danger because of some of the history, you know, just like the, the history of Ruby Ridge, which was this, um, you know, this extremist type person who ended up getting, um, I'll just get to the FBI, FBI raided and uh, there were people right. shot. And so it ended up becoming this, like this touchstone for the militia movement historically. So like, you know, in the nineties, this was like this, this big moment 
in the region that ended up creating this movement. Oh, yeah. And so that was kind of what I ended up really, really getting into what was called the um, reporting on what was called then as the readout, this idea that this is going to be this bulwark of conservative and Jewish Christian um, sanctuary if in the event of the government collapsing or the government overreaching and trying to attack conservatives, that Idaho is going to be this place of of refuge for these conservatives. Right, right. His goal is not to move up in national politics. It's to eventually be the warlord of that redoubt. Well, in his in his divorce filings, his his wife had said that he had this like belief that he was um, his ex wife. I should right. say. Um, had this belief that, that he was going to be um, like uh, a data someday be like the governor of, of Washington after the collapse or, or something like that. But basically, this is kind of this this idea of being this sort of leader. Right, <laughs> and in fact, right. there is this there is this um, like kind of this post-apocalyptic fan fiction series oh, um, that I had I wrote about that was kind of big in this kind of movement where like the government collapses and, you know, there's like war in Olympia and all that kind of things. And, you know. He was kind of this, you know, insert for this character that was. There's a character based on him in that book that um, was big in that movement. So yeah, so wow. I think he was seeing him himself as this, um, you know, kind of this this destined to be this this leader. And he has this certain sort of like like genuine kind of charisma. He can either kind of be this like kind of like professorial, like you know, speaking about all these leading indicators of government collapse, or like very like like a you know preacher who's giving this uh, kind of these kind of, you know, kind of bombastic, fiery, inspirational kind of uh, almost sermons. Right, right. Um, so he had some really like intense followers and he had been involved behind the scenes with the um, Mallor National Wildlife Refuge standoff with the Bundys that kind of got him ultimately in trouble. He ended up getting kicked out from the the House Republican Caucus, which uh, the, the Washington State House Republican Caucus, and which in a, in of itself was really dividing the that move ended up really dividing the 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 local the kind of the Republican parties across the state and some were Team Shea and some were you know with the leadership and that kind of thing. Right. One other thing I found really interesting when I started digging into Shea didn't know a lot about him until I started looking and I remember your series with the fights that he had over the police militarization issue with mm-hmm. um, Sheriff Knezovich. It turned out that Matt Shea had been a very early InfoWars regular, like that Alex mm-hmm. Jones had been promoting him as early as mm-hmm. like 2008, 2009. Yeah, really, really early on in the sense of like, he was just, you know, kind of a beginning, like, I think this is 2009. I think this is like his, you know, kind of right. He had just been elected basically. Right. And he was going on Alex Jones show and going on InfoWars and talking about this conspiracy about uh, FEMA camps. That yes. They were like- yes building these FEMA camps as a, you know, a potential in the future for, uh, you know, if they're going to round up all the patriots, the government's going to round up Christians and patriots and right. like send them to like camps. And, and Shea was kind of like, well, you know, that's always a concern kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and that was, I think really early on, what kind of one of the things that put reporters on like, well, this guy's really, you know, he came in as like a, a veteran who had some nuance. He didn't like when he was first elected, like voters didn't have a sense that he was a, uh, you know, any kind of extremist at all, I don't think. No, he didn't sell it that way. He also never came close to losing an election. It's just a really, really conservative area. You know, even when there's a kind of a more moderate conservative running against him, the moderate conservative didn't do very well because Shea was embedded. And and honestly, 
when it came to like, you know, constituent services or, you know, kind of working with pushing certain bills that constituents wanted, um, whether it was ATVs or even like um, hemp farming or like regulations and businesses, Shea was like relatively, you know, relatively successful. Right. So that was the thing too, is that he wasn't just, he was, you know, do some crazy messaging bills about splitting off. We're going to need to like make Eastern Washington its own state called the state of liberty. But like he would also do real legislation in the midst of it. And so for a while he was kind of like, well, there's the side of shade that's kind of crazy, but there's a kind of shade that's like the side of shade that's professional. And I think for a while, like the Republican establishment could kind of compartmentalize the two. Right. Because, you know, he's getting stuff done. He's getting reelected in a <laughs> district that, you know, most of our people may not do as great in. He's reelected by huge margins as long as he <laughs> relatively plays ball. You know, yeah, then yeah. we're going to be fine. Yeah. And there were times he was always sort of a loose, loose cannon. But eventually, I think there was times when once, once the stuff from Mallor came out, the Republicans ended up kind of like saying, hey, we're going to do this investigation into Shea because of some of these concerns. And the investigator came back and said, oh, um, we've concluded that Shea has been involved with, with supporting domestic terrorism. Oh, yeah. And so that was kind of like a real, um, you know, that was a, a, a term that, you know, as reporters, we wouldn't use but the investigator used it um and so it's like well this is something we're going to be reporting well because there was that report from the woman who was at the mexican restaurant in the valley and ended up calling the cops because she was terrified <laughs> at what she heard being talked about at the booth behind yeah. her and it turned out it was matt shea and Stuart rhodes yeah who were sitting here having this conversation and, uh, and where shea is you know is like you know talking about the the bundy ranch standoff and is like you know they tuck tailed and ran you know kind of this yeah. like dramatic like you know this cheerleading speech about how we're the we're the heroes there. Wow. And so is that that was a really those are really interesting moments. It was kind of like, I mean, I almost got sick of the somewhat sick of the Matt Shea beat because it was like we we'd established so much, I think, who he was. It was just sort of like, yeah, I mean, there's more of it was it was a certain extent where it was like kind of like more of the same. And sometimes we ended up kind of getting, well, here we go again. I'm gonna have to write another right. Matt Shea story, you know. It's like covering Jack Posobiec or something, you know, you just get to a point where you're like, God, again, same thing yeah. again. And editors are like that. I think sometimes too, it's like, we have so many things we have to cover. You know, we were a team of like four news writers at the Inlander at our, at our height. Right. Um, and so it's like, we have so much to cover. We can't just cover this one guy, but, and then one of my former colleagues ended up writing a kind of a, a roundup of a lot of the Matt Shea coverage that had been written before for a national audience and published it in Rolling Stone magazine. Her name was Aaliyah Satili. Right. And she's a just an incredibly talented writer and stylist. And so like, it definitely got him on the radar of everyone. And really, oh, like, yeah. I remember those pieces. Yeah. I also remember her Bundyville series, the podcast yeah. that she did. And yeah, that was a huge, huge one listening to that and going, wow, this is just such yeah. a great podcast. Everybody go listen to Bundyville. It's good stuff. And and covering extremism is sort of like in one sense it's it's an over it's actually somewhat an overpopulated beat. I mean, there's probably more extremism reporters in the United States than we need. But the issue is is that like the there's some things that I think are really overcovered, and there's some things that are undercovered. Right. And and some parts of uh, the kind of the Idaho region and some of in the Northwest region, some of it has been traditionally undercovered, or people get to it like um, kind of late in right. the game, and after after sort of the the trend has moved on. Like like there's been some pieces on on the readout that came out, you know, relatively recently, and I'm like, people don't really talk about the readout anymore. That's not really a movement 
in, in, in the same way as it was in the uh, Obama years. Yeah, yeah. 2011, 2012, the readout was a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was everybody thought that was going to be the thing. But now it's like they're thinking that they're just going to go ahead and get the whole thing. It seems like talking about who's moving to Idaho and what kind of political clout yeah. they're starting to establish. They're playing a different game now. And I think, too, that like that, like the COVID kind of took out some of the mystique, the the kind of the, the romance of isolating yourself and kind of being out, <laughs> you know, camping alone. And it was just like, you know, a lot of people that were kind of like, like this was the moment, you know, for some of those people. And then it was like. They didn't like it at all. Right. They just wanted to be back in society, and you know, yeah, and, and like the readout was kind of a um, hands-off, like we're going to be able to do your own thing, leave us alone kind of movement. Right. Whereas now, a lot of the the far right in Idaho is more of it's time to like take control, and we're going to like you know impose our views and create the society we want. So it's not a liber- not really libertarian movement yeah. at all right now no 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 it's more of the you know christian white nationalist movement that's happening now you've got guys like vincent james and dave riley and millennial Mm -hmm. matt colligan and guys like that Mm -hmm. that are starting to be in the area and these aren't survivalist types at all these are guys that want to take over and that's the really interesting kind of like that's the thing that that i was reporting relatively early on is you had this past of uh infamously the Aryan nations in the region right Right. so infamously you had and you've talked on this podcast, uh, you know, before about, you know, being a, a student at North Central High School, which is the school I later attended. Hey, 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 red and black. And like having <laughs> Aryan nations trying to recruit your friends, that kind of thing. And then like, you know, they end up getting uh, sued and basically out of the, uh, effectively out of the region by like 2000. And so when I was doing my reporting on extremists at the Inlander for the most part, most of the time, the Aryan nations was was basic, you know, dead. The idea of white nationalism, there were occasionally some like, you know, vestiges, but for the most part, that was, in fact, like I would use if like an expert brought up the Aryan nations um, in the region, I would use that as like a litmus test for not really trusting the expert because in the sense, because like they don't really know what's going on in, in Idaho now, right? right. Like they, they were just behind the times and the readout was not, inherently like it was explicitly designed as a movement that wasn't racist like they were very explicit to say you know we're, we're accepting of all races kind of you know any christians of any races and and to be clear like there was some definite racists that were a part of the readout movement that they kind of overlooked but it wasn't the the kind of the driving motivation right. of the movement whereas like the Aryan nations it was definitely like we're building a white homeland here and they were very specific about that part Absolutely. Absolutely. That was kind of the whole imperative. Right. But this new trend, we saw these these kind of these a significant number of people from the what had been called the alt-right, when I still think is the best, you know, kind of term to refer to. So all these kind of a lot of these relatively young, kind of trollish, internet savvy, right-wing nationalist kind of people that were involved, most many of them who've been involved in one way or the other in Charlottesville or in right. the itinerarian movement in Austria, you know, kind of head through from 2017 to 2021, had all been like successfully moving to um, this specific part of North Idaho, the Coeur d'Alene, Post Falls region up there. Right. And we're really intentionally trying to like take the reins of politics there. And so it was kind of this, this thing was like, wow, like they're trying to sort of infuse the militia movement, patriot movement with effectively white nationalism, anti-Semitism, 
trying to sort of merge these two right. strains, which had been really, really separated. In a lot of ways, it had been like separated and was this, a, there were distinct strains when I was doing most of my reporting at the Inlander. Right. And that was always the way I saw it was like the Patriot movement, the militia movement by itself mm-hmm. was not inherently racist. And they would actually bend over backwards in a lot of cases mm-hmm. to avoid that appearance because they yeah. saw to some large extent where it got them and where it got the mm-hmm. groups previously. Yeah, it was very anti. A lot of the a lot of this stuff was very anti-refugee and very scared of Im- immigrants, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee. But they would, yeah, they would be very clear. Like, here's my black friend. They would like, they oh, would yeah. often like, here's the, you know, very, very eager to like show, you know, in a lot of cases they weren't necessarily a part of this. They, yet there had also been like a there was a, a distinct kind of neo-Confederate strain that was there. Right. And and so there's there's that kind of element. But a lot of that was kind of more of like neo-Confederate because of like the, you know, the Confederacy was anti-government. Right. Rather than necessarily the Confederacy was all about slavery and racism, that kind of thing. Right. It was it was more of a distrust and fear of the United States government that they were trying to yeah. emulate up there. When one of the, the legislators uh, rep, uh, represented Heather Scott, like waves a confederate flag like she doesn't mean that as a as an actual racist symbol she's like this is about free speech this is about defying uh you know barack obama who says we shouldn't fly the flag right so it's it's like it's it's like she's intending it more as like a statement of like defiance necessarily than a an explicit embrace she's a a racist symbol even though like it's a racist symbol yeah it's totally a racist symbol that's not going to fly outside of their little group but that's how they see it yeah, they're yeah. wrong. <laughs> That's yeah. how they see and, it. And, and I don't think it's actually the case where there's other people was like clearly other. Oh, they're hiding this aspect. Having covered Heather Scott, I don't think that's really like I don't think she was really hiding this like intense explicit racism that she's, you know, I mean, like, you could definitely say there's implicit stuff, but like, you know, not in terms of like that's not her driving motivator from what I can tell. Right, right. So, you know, people who aren't familiar with Spokane mm-hmm. probably don't realize how much of a journalism town Mm -hmm. it actually is and how it's always had a good Mm -hmm. tradition of you know Mm -hmm. crusading newspapers great shoe leather journalists Mm -hmm. people like bill moreland Mm -hmm. who covered the modern white supremacist movement literally from the very beginning and Mm -hmm. there's always been a pretty strong tradition of investigative reporting was that part of your motivation to pursue journalism as a career yeah i mean i had been um and I, i kind of like when i was growing up i'd i'd um I wanted to be a, a writer and I was, you know, kind of, at least, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, well, I want to write kind of Hardy by style novels, you know, when you're, when you're younger. And then it was kind of more of like, I wanted to do like, I was doing like, you know, I'd read uh, Dave Barry and Patrick McManus. And so I was more like into like the, you know, the humor writing essayist kind of uh, mold. And then I, I think it was like, I ended up getting into, um, you know, college and writing a humor column for the college newspaper. But also I was always really, um, attracted to unanswered questions. So there'd been this newsletter that had been posted. There was kind of this anonymous newsletter that had been posted called Eric's Fruit Stand, which is a re rehash of this newsletter from the 90s. And all of the, the people had pseudonyms, but it was driving me crazy because I wanted to know who these people were. And so I ended up like trying to figure out, like analyzing the writing style, figuring out from, you know, their use of semicolons, things like that. There's probably English majors, probably like, or journalism majors, communication majors, you know, trying to figure out, okay, who, who are these sort of people? I was inspired by like, or the story called the Smithsonian about how they figured out who was behind the anonymous person behind primary colors by the writing style. So I was kind of interested in that. Mm. And I ended up like, okay, let me go back to like the old archives. And so I, I was like, went to the archives 
to check out the old Eric's fruit stand. And when the archivist hands me the checkout sheet, I end up seeing another name right above it for like the same, uh, checking out the same thing three weeks earlier. And so I'm like, oh, huh. you know, Nixon. So I cross-referenced it with Facebook, which was relatively new at the time, with other conversations. So I was able to like put piece together who all these people were, essentially. And so that that <laughs> so for me, like I, I see that as kind of my origin story as an investigative reporter. Like there is that sense of wanting to write and wanting to do, you know, great prose. And I'd always loved opinion writing. But I was um, I think I became really, really in love with also with that that aspect of of trying to figure out the unanswered question, that kind of that, that itch, that kind of the shave in the haircut without two bits kind of like thing that drives you crazy right. trying to figure out like, I don't know the answer to that. And and, and I need to, <laughs> and that's the kind of that obsessive drive. And so that was kind of what, what I think largely drove me though. Of course, you know, I, I grew up reading, you know, spokesman review and there was, you know, there was a girl at it, like this, um, this crush on that like loaned me the, um, the uh, Every Knee Shall Bow, which was the Jess Walter book about Ruby Ridge. And he was this, um, people think that I'm related to him, despite having a slightly different last name. <laughs> but like, I was like, you know, this this sort of journalistic legacy and this great writing. And, you know, I always sort of respected that. And I think that was kind of the the thing that, you know, ended up kind of drawing me in. And and my my parents had raised me. I was kind of raised in this evangelical background. And my parents had, you know, named me Daniel after the, the guy in the Bible who was speaking, literally speaking truth to power, right? Right. And so that was kind of an, always a part of like growing up and like, hey, we're, you're going to basically be a person they believe that you're, who's who's going to speak the, um, you know, speak the truth and show the truth. And so that's always been like a really important value to me. Sometimes too, sometimes yeah. my parents might regret instilling <laughs> that value and not instilling other Values like <laughs> politeness better, more, but you know, but that, that was something that was always driving me, I think. And I think as I've aged as a reporter, I become more, probably more empathetic and more like looking for humanity and looking for, for nuance rather than just, um, you know, judgment. But I think that has always been a big part as well. Right. And you wrote for a paper for 15 years, the local alt weekly, as you said, it would be kind of like the stranger if they didn't swear, uh, <laughs> called the Inlander, which is a pretty great paper and has been for a number of years. <laughs> they cover Spokane and the region known as the Inland Empire. And when you were there, you covered quite a number of stories on a wide variety of topics. Can you talk a little about some of the more memorable stuff you got to write about? Yeah. I mean, I was... Um... I was a city hall reporter for a really long time. And one of my favorite stories was a story where I looked at this guy who came in as this Blu-ray manufacturer, uh, kind of named Eric Hansen. He was, you know, celebrated by the mayor. This was going to be the start of this like tech industry in Spokane. Oh. And he turned out to be like a con artist who had like literally oh. like to like to, to con the bank into thinking that he was this was a going concern. He had like the local like property manager, like dress up in lab coats to look like they were like scientists and things like that. <laughs> oh, um, and the FBI ended up raiding him. And so I kind of wrote this piece about digging into like, you know, this person and like kind of this, this moment between when this guy um, launched this business and when he was raided by the FBI and it like, it involved Michael Jackson's dad and a bikini contest in Bahamas <laughs> and cockroach ridden <laughs> apartments. And like all of these things kind of combined and like, Probably the longest piece I wrote. It's called the, the Wizard of Spokane. But I think it was like probably the, still the proudest I've been of a piece of like real journalism where I'm kind of, and it was just sort of exactly what I wanted to do where I'm like, 
capturing the like the scope of wrongdoing, but also some of the like the absurdity and scope and just insanity of some of these pieces and some of humanity. So that was really that was one of my favorite pieces. And we will link that piece in the show notes, folks. Yeah. And so that was a whole, like, that was when I was, you know, relatively, it was 20, you know, that was a decade ago. Right. And so, uh, and then and I wrote a lot of pieces that were, um, you know, kind of trying to, uh, there was a, a saga where the um, the police chief had been suddenly like uh, effectively out, he was ousted, he was effectively like forced to resign. And uh, there'd been all this sort of cover up around it. And so then like the kind of the hard hitting reporter for the, the spokes review ended up figuring out that like, oh, there's this other, this kind of related incident mm-hmm. where the police comms person had been moved out. She'd requested to be moved out because she was had accused the um, police chief of sexual harassment. Oh. In the, in the quotes of the, the notes that had been uncovered from the records request of grabbing her ass and trying to kiss her. Ooh, not good. And so like there was this big sort of cover-up scandal. And so it was a situation where I was like competing with this really, really talented daily reporter and trying, you know, kind of trading off scoops and really, you know, so that was really, really fun. I don't know, there's pieces, I pulled, wrote a piece about this guy trying to escape Afghanistan at the fall of Afghanistan and kind of, and he doesn't end up, but at least by the end of that piece, he doesn't end up escaping despite all the efforts of Ugh. his local, like, because one of the um, the treasurer here and the former state senator had been one of his coworkers and was like a friend of his. And he was just like desperately trying to, you know, kind of fulfill this promise that we made to guys like him. Right. And so it's this sort of this heartbreaking moment. I was looking, using WhatsApp and like these text messages and kind of trying to tell that story. And the good news is I was able to write a follow-up a year later where he was able to finally get to the United States. Awesome. Which I was really proud of because it was one of those stories that conservatives might like better than people that are like Joe Biden supporters, but it's also like really showing the consequences of our policies, uh, both the you know initial invasion and also our decision to retreat and what we did in the middle. Right. And actually how it's re- really, really impacting real lives and kind of the, the terror that can be associated with it. So I was, that was one of the pieces I was most proud of there. Nice. Nice. That sounds great. So you're with investigate west now Mm -hmm. which is this investigative nonprofit based Mm -hmm. out of seattle founded by former employees of the seattle pi when that paper folded what do you find the differences between say that and a culture of an alt weekly like the inlander yeah it's actually kind of there's actually more people in in spokane actually right now than seattle (laughs) even though like i don't even know i don't think we have like actual writers living in seattle we have some people in kind of vancouver and some uh, writer in oregon and we're getting a lot more writers soon but yeah, it's it's sort of fascinating because it's a little bit like of it like the um, sometimes it's almost like the Associated Press for investigative journalism. We'll write an investigative piece, and then other papers are able to pick up our piece and just run it for for free, which is pretty great. Oh. And so we end up getting a lot of traction um, sometimes. With we'll write a piece, and then it'll end up getting. Uh, sometimes we work with the with the kind of the publications ahead of time. Other times it'll just, just pick it up. So I'll write a piece in Idaho. And then it gets picked up at the Coeur Press and the Idaho Statesman and all sorts of things. And so I had kind of been recruited. Um, they were looking for like a um, democracy and extremism reporter through P- Report for America. It's kind of this, right. this organization that usually kind of uh, funds young up-and-coming reporters. But they were able to kind of get this grant to do cover democracy and extremism. And the editor-in-chief of Investigate West was my old editor. And so he knew that I was really into this beat, really kind of knowledgeable and kind of been in, in, in some ways leading this beat in Northwest for a while in terms of extremism. So he recruited me. I had to go through the whole hiring process with Investigate West and Report for America and with that whole process. And, you know, right. it was so competitive and it wasn't definitely guaranteed that I would, I would get it. But 
you know, kind of I've been there and it's been a big adjustment for work from home, but it's, it's pretty cool. This kind of things that we've been able to produce. Uh, there's just a um, group home that was just shut down, I believe as a result of one of my colleagues reportings in uh, this really terrible group home in North Idaho, you know, so like there's actually been an impact like that from some of our reporting. Yeah. So when you guys write, people tend to see it and go, Hey, wait a minute, there's, there's something that needs to be addressed here. That's got to feel pretty great. Yes. Yeah. I think it's so, but it's also like, I'm, I always really want to make sure that we're not like our job is to like report the truth. It's sort of my, my belief. And then like, it's everyone else's job to like what they do with that. Right. And so sometimes we're going to like, you know, we can report some about some horrible situation people need to act on, but it's ultimately up to them to act. Sure. And so in the sense of like, I always want reporting to be the actual like truth is the important thing, not the, not necessarily the impact from that truth. Um, But like, but it is good in terms of like, we're going to like try to like focus on things that might make a difference for sure. Right. So you've got a story that just came out about Thomas Rousseau and Patriot Front, the white supremacist group that's made headlines for their marches and demonstrations. Regular listeners of the podcast will remember that members of Patriot Front were arrested and charged with conspiracy to riot while on their way to protest the 2022 Pride in the Park event in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Most of them either pled guilty or were convicted, but not Thomas Rousseau. What happened? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. So it's 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 really fascinating because you know there's a couple things that happen. I kind of like well, first of all, like I was like, like well, you know, some people have asked the question of you know, is this a situation where the prosecution was just sort of you know sandbagging it? You know, this is kind of a, a right wing area. Maybe they didn't want to. It's like no, no, no. The local city prosecutors were trying really, really hard to get this guy and have, you know, are, are still trying. They're still, they're actually appealing the dismissal. But there's a couple things that happened. First of all, they ended up trying, like, initially, like, charging all 31 people separately as opposed, and they, they only tried to, like, join the cases later on. And the issue with that is that, like, the Coeur court system really was not set up to handle 31 defendants at the same time. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a big town. <laughs> no. And because this was a misdemeanor, this was a charge with a misdemeanor as opposed to like a, a felony and it was in, within city limits. This is ha- handled by local city prosecutors, the kind of people that are handling like infractions and, you know, some Yahoo graffitiing some sign in Coeur d'Alene. And so there, there's only like four attorneys. There's only four attorneys that are part of the um, prosecuting team. And then one of those attorneys ends up going on paternity leave. And then one of them ends up going on vacation. Oh, boy. So you have situations where literally like there's a moment, there's a hearing, and then nobody shows up to court. Like the prosecution team doesn't show up to court. The, the, the judge is really upset. It was a situation where they're like, there's only two attorneys there and both of them were tied up in court at the time. And so there's a situation where like they were continually, you know, kind of one hand, like really sort of overwhelmed with the amount they had to do and the amount of plates they had to keep spinning in the air. We had nine different judges, 31 different defendants. And then on top of it, instead of a situation where like all these defendants are handled by this harried public defender's office, the public defender ends up saying like, I can't represent multiple Patriot Front members without it being a conflict of interest, you know, um, if one person might have a, a an incentive to take a deal, which might hurt another Patriot Front member. So you can't really have everyone represented by the same attorney. Right, right. So they end up recruiting private attorneys to be paid for by the county to end up um, litigating. You have some really, really like talented and intense 
private attorneys. So Rousseau ends up getting represented by this guy named Kinzo Mihara, who was a former Marine who ended up getting an award for like dragging some guy from a burning cockpit after a helicopter crash in <laughs> North Idaho. So he like he was kind of a local hero. But if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen Killers of the Flower Moon, but there's a moment where like a guy, an attorney um, standing, played by Brendan Fraser, ends up standing, you know, kind of standing up in the court and be like, my client is, and everyone's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, this is over the top. Like, no, it's not over the top. Because you read a lot of this guy's filings and he's talking about like, you know, patriots are turning over in their graves and all these kind of like really bombastic kind of over the top statements. But it's it's effective. And it, like it's driving like two of these attorneys end up like kind of driving the, the prosecution crazy. And then what Mahara does, is he finds a way to turn what could have been like one of the biggest like coups and advantages for the prosecution. The fact that they like ended up taking 37 different um, electronic devices, cell phones, USB um, drives, data sticks from Patriot Front it ends up turning it away to get Rousseau off. So basically you have a situation where you have all of these this information taken. So what uh, Rousseau's attorney ends up saying is, hey, we think that one of these cell phones, the cell phone of one of the Patriot Front members, the videographer, has something that could be exculpatory, helpful to prove his innocence, basically a video of Patriot Front leadership encouraging people to remain peaceful and nonviolent during the rally, basically that could undercut the idea that these guys were here to disturb the peace. Right. You know, that may or not may not have been the case, but the problem is, is the prosecution doesn't actually have that cell phone anymore. Ooh. Because the Coeur d'Alene Police Department gave it over to the FBI before the FBI had actually completed a warrant to, to get it. And so basically, and and they can't ask for it back um, because they don't have control of the FBI. The FBI, they gave them like a like a, a data copy of the cell phones, but like it's, it's incomplete, doesn't have like all the stuff on it. And so um, basically by the end of it, like several judges in this case are, are kind of like furious. They're like, hey, you guys really, really screwed up. You don't have... This evidence, there's been repeated delays, there's been repeated situations where there's, you know, you you haven't objections, just, you know, really upset at the prosecution. So in two different cases, judges end up basically dismissing the case against Patriot Front members, <laughs> including the judge who ends up dismissing the case against Thomas Rousseau, who's a leader. So it's one of those things where like all these other guys end up taking a plea or getting convicted. And then the guy who's actually like behind it, who'd actually find the document on a document on that says, um, we're going to like create this confrontational dynamic at pride in the park. He gets away with it. So it's kind of one of those, like those outrageous kind of moments. You know, the, always the, the movie trope where the, the action hero ends up like shooting all of these like mooks and these henchmen and then gets to the, uh, the main bad guy. And he's like, no, I'm going to let you go. Kind of like, it's almost like that kind of like outcome, right? Like uh, this guy gets, you know, the, the Joker gets away to, you know, taunt Batman another day. Right. And so it's just, it's one of those things where like, it's, it's, to me, it, it shows how difficult one of these cases are for local prosecutors to prosecute. It actually kind of shows me, Hey, people like wondering why haven't like some of these rioting cases been brought effectively during 2020. Some of these protests, there were situations where you know, there was rioting, looting, vandalism, it's like, these are actually really, really hard for prosecutors to have a lot of evidence. And in this case, he had to deal with intent and all of that kind of that, that messiness. And then on top of that, it's just like, you know, when the FBI gets involved, they have their own motivations, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And sometimes those motivations are going to be really hard to discern for (laughs) somebody who is just watching this from the outside. I mean, I like to think that they're probably watching Rousseau pretty closely, especially with where he's at these (laughs) days. And they may not want to jeopardize something else they're working on for a misdemeanor case in Idaho. Yeah, And so we know that they're working on something. So there's a sealed warrant that they were, so the warrant was sealed. And so we don't get to see the warrant. We don't know what was on the warrant, but it's sealed. And so we know that the FBI is watching Patriot Front. We know the FBI is, is skeptical of Patriot Front. Rousseau tries to be very, very careful not to give the FBI an excuse to intervene. So even in these leak, all these leaked chat messages that have been leaked on a site called Unicorn Riot, right? These kind of these internal rocket chat messages. Rousseau is ve- and the Patriot members are very, very careful to, to claim that they're nonviolent. Though some of them are saying like we're against violence. For now, yeah, like there may come a time where we have to have this race war revolution kind of thing. But for now, we're nonviolent because Rousseau is always thinking like defensively in that sense. Right. So wouldn't wouldn't have surprised me at all if there had been this thing where he says, let's be super peaceful and not disturb the peace just as a as a cautionary measure. Yeah. Rousseau does not strike me as a stupid person. He does not strike me as somebody who is unintelligent. And he seems like he's studied the history of this movement to some extent and knows where the mistakes got made by previous yeah. leaders. And and in fact, like he had like come out of, as you, you kind of know, he'd come out of the Vanderbilt America move, you know, which had been involved with Charles. Right. Yeah. So they're very, very aware of these kinds of things. And I mean, if you read through Rousseau, it's, it's sort of funny because of how much of a asshole boss he is. I mean, just like really, really, you know, like somebody comes to uh, him with complaints about one of the members and then he shows them screenshots and then Rousseau's like, why are you talking to them uh, about this business using this app? He's like upset about, you know, all these other kinds of, you know, very, oh, very yeah. micromanaging and controlling. But yeah, I don't, I think it's always a mistake to think that all these people are just, are just stupid. And even the people that aren't necessarily that intelligent that are in these movements, like they can be, you know, kind of dumb in some ways, but pretty intelligent in other ways. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Rousseau is definitely sort of an idiot, but it's it's also one of those things where it's like, you know, I mean, there's been situations as much as these guys claim to be peaceful, there's a situation right now that they're being sued by a black musician in Boston who confronted them when they were I'm kind of rallying Boston and allegedly getting like beat up by these guys. And so like it's it's not necessarily something that has not resulted in violence either. So there's there's that concern. Right. But sort of the, the the way I'm concluding conclude my story is just talking about the the fact that like a lot of cases the civil route um, you know kind of using a lawsuit like had been used by the Southern Poverty Law Center against the Aryan Nations is sometimes the more effective route than the federal route because a lot of times the federal route is more about they're trying to track these guys and maybe they're trying to get bigger fish. And there's deals being struck, that kind of thing. And so the motivations for the federal government is not necessarily the motivations of groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center. Right, right. And, you know, this is where you see those those clashing motivations play out is in <laughs> cases like this. Yeah. And they don't care. They probably just don't care. Like, oh, the guy gets a misdemeanor. I mean, the guy's gotten misdemeanors. The guy's been arrested before. Like, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they don't care if it looked good for Coeur d'Alene, really. You know, FBI doesn't. And they'll like, you kind of do the minimum, but they're not going to like, if there's anything that would like jeopardize that case they're filing right now, they're not going to like bid over backwards to help out the local guys. Right. And this is a subject I'm glad we're talking about because it <laughs> keeps coming up. They are constantly accusing 
Thomas Rousseau and Patriot <laughs> Front of being feds because <laughs> of things like this. And I think it's good to kind of get it out there why they aren't necessarily getting convicted in some of these cases. It's not because they're feds or even federal informants. Mm -hmm. It's because yeah. sometimes the prosecution just makes mistakes and things happen. What's funny is, is, that, is that some of these guys, including um, Casey Knudsen, who's a former Patriot Front member who I wrote about for the Willamette Week, they're like actually kind of flattered when guys are like, you know, they can't, they can't be, they're too strong and handsome to be federal, you know, federal agents. <laughs> this is kind of like, they're like, they're like, we actually, I actually come that kind of flattering, you know? Oh. So the idea that they're all feds is particularly ridiculous, especially because, you know, they, they found child pornography on one of these phones. Right. That all being said though, is like having attract these wounds, I would be very like, surprised if there's not some level of federal government infiltration. I don't necessarily mean like undercover agents, but like informants, you know. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, the head of the Proud Boys, Enrico Terrio, he had been a government informant at, at some mm -hmm. point, right? And like when the um, Maller Wildlife Refuge standoff happened, there were like, you know, multiple people that were in this small group at the standoff who were federal informants, right? Right. And not only that, but you had an anti-fascist who was able to infiltrate the um, Patriot Front for four months and ended up getting all of these text messages as a part of it. And so like the idea that like, so I think it would be a fallacy to say that definitely an idiotic fallacy to say they're all feds, but also probably a fallacy to say none of them are like the federal government isn't like, hasn't infiltrated this group at all at some capacity. I don't sure, have any because, evidence that they're like, there's any like undercover agent there, but like, no. you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they have multiple people who as part of some deal are feeding information to the federal government. Right. Right. And that's been the song of their people since they've been doing this kind of yeah. stuff. There's always been guys that have had legal problems as a result of their life choices that are involved in this. <laughs> I mean, going all the way back to Ruby Ridge, they mm -hmm. had an informant who was in trouble they needed to get some cases built. This guy tried to entrap the guy who was living <laughs> on the mountain, Randy Weaver. Yeah. And when it didn't work, that's when all of this, this took off. But they've always had people who've had complicated legal problems that can be solved by talking to the feds about whoever <laughs> you're associating with here. And, and I'm sure Patriot Front's full of them. And at times there's, there's been, you know, uh, like civil libertarian types who are actually concerned sometimes about the use of like informants or undercover agents or situations where you have, you know, some Muslim who are like this approach by this guy, like we want like encouraged by undercover agents to build a bomb or that kind of thing. Right. Like, so you have situations where like the, the, there is a, like a real debate about like how much are these guys actually trying to entrap these people versus how much are they monitoring, you know, a potentially dangerous group. Right. Because you right. don't want, you don't want the federal government, like, developing bomb plots, but you do want them stopping bomb plots, right? Uh-huh. And so it's it's one of those, like, I think that it is worth sort of like always as a reporter taking time to say, okay, there may be two sides to this in the sense of like, you know, what is the federal government doing? And is there abuse? And is there an abuse of power by the federal law enforcement as well? Because I think, because you talked to Jess Walter or the book about Ruby Ridge, he will say that like, there's definitely very bad decisions made by the FBI in that case. Right. There's also very bad decisions made by Randy Weaver. Randy Weaver was like, had ties to you know white supremacy. Somebody I think there's a tendency for people to like play sides as journalists. And I think it's really important to make sure that we're like, we have values, but we're not like playing for teams, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Very much. And, you know, talking, going back to a guy you mentioned, Casey Knutson, mm -hmm. you wrote pretty extensively about a fight 
that broke out at the Oregon City Pride event mm-hmm. between members of the Proud Boys and a new white nationalist group that was calling itself the Rose City Nationalists. Mm-hmm. The founder of the group was the guy, Casey Knutson, that we talked about. And this guy had been kicked out of both the Proud Boys and Patriot Front for being too extreme and overt about his mm-hmm. white supremacy. Yeah, though I don't views. know if he was actually kicked out of Patriot Front. I think he had been, um, he left Patriot Front, but like, but I don't have evidence that he was actually officially kicked out. Um, okay. It does seem like he was like bristling under Rousseau's kind of micromanaging leadership. And you literally had like one of the higher ups trying to get him to break up with his girlfriend and like, you know, trying to like really micromanage his life in some ways. And that's the level Thomas Rousseau micromanages these people too, is like, yeah. you know, <laughs> break up with your girlfriend, do all of these things. Yeah. So that's going to really not sit well. It's like a cult, basically, in some ways, you know, it's like you literally write down the like, you have all this, you know, we're going to like, get your life together, get off of drugs. And I mean, Knudsen was a former opioid addict. And so he was, I mean, there's a kind of this heartbreaking message that I found from his sister, where his sister's like, talking about how proud she is of her brother for like, for kicking his opioid addiction and going to treatment. And so it's a kind of a sad thing where like, he's trading one addiction, like, like some people like find religion after like religion is the key for them to like find like something to cling to, to really like as, as refuge after getting an addiction. But for some people, it's white supremacy. And that's, that's the case for Newton where he had all this anger over the world and, you know, growing up in poverty and his dad dying and all this sort of anger. And then he's trying to find the villain and the villain he finds is, you know, racial minorities and, and Jewish people basically. Yes. Yes. And you dove pretty deep into this and Mm -hmm. you found some of the fissures that were Mm -hmm. going in the right wing activist scene. Were you pretty surprised at some of what you found? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of just, it's just sort of fascinating how, uh, and this is always sort of a conversation with editors too. It's like, it's like, well, this seems really petty. I was like, yeah, but like the pettiness is, this is the thing is the pettiness, petty stuff and little like internal conflicts can be the things that create a fissure that end up really cracking up entire movements. Oh, yeah. So like it, it seemed like he had gotten kicked out of the Proud Boys largely because of his just very, very overt anti-Semitism. Right. And there was this kind of internal tension within the Proud Boys about how much are we going to police? Um, we're, you know, they're, they're, Proud Boys are like consider themselves like very like anti woke and they're not going to be like, you know, trying to police. They they want to, they don't want to consider themselves like, you know, very, very concerning, you know, politically incorrect. They're kind of like, they want to see themselves as the cool people who are not like going to get their you know feathers ruffled. But like a lot of it was very overt and it, it offended some, like actually kind of made some of the people that were in the Proud Boys angry. Like, like this isn't who we're a part of at all. He's up getting like, I think sent multiple times through what they call Sharia court, <laughs> which is sort of a backhanded sort of reference to Islamic law, but he ends up getting like kicked out there. But then like, he's continually like trolling proud boys in these chat messages. There's these fake proud boy telegram pages. There are like started that seem to have his fingerprints all over it. Right. And then like, there's this whole, uh, there's this whole drama where this anti-fascist activist and this proud boy that basically are trying to each sort of destroy the other group. And instead they end up falling in love and <laughs> end up getting engaged and get married. So it's this like this Romeo and Juliet type saga. But then like, after that happens, like it creates so chaos for like the anti-fascists chaos for the proud boys. And in the midst of it, there's this anonymous count that comes up called 
Truth Told Portland, which is oh, this boy. like really, really nasty in it account that's like exposing all of these, this personal information about Proud Boys, threatening this to throw acid on this anti-fascist, this, the, the kind of the girlfriend in this this scenario, like trying to threat, threaten to throw acid on his, on their face. Everyone thinks it's Casey. Proud Boys are accusing it to be, uh, being Casey. The anti-fascists, like Rose City uh, anti-fascists, uh, Rose City um, Antifa, end up saying this is Casey, like just objectively. Casey right. internally within the Patriot Front members is denying it, but like, who's going to believe like a, a white yeah. nationalist? Who's going to believe this guy? Like, you know, but he's like, you got to believe me guys. Like to like the, the you know, his, <laughs> his, it's really kind of sad. Like, and he's protesting it. And then I, it turns out that at least according to Mikey Johnson, the, the, the proud boy and um, the, I talked to both him and his um, wife, like they end up moving and they find this password behind this filing cabinet that belongs to, at least allegedly belongs to Mikey Johnson's ex-girlfriend. And it unlocks the Truth Told Portland account. Oh. And so it turns out it was like, at least according to, from what uh, Johnson included, it was his ex-girlfriend who was just like <laughs> behind the scenes, like like throwing chaos into mm -hmm. the, you know, pulling the strings and watching like the puppets fight. Right. And so he, they find out about this and tell Patriot, uh, tell the Proud Boys. But by then it's already gone to like the Proud Boys National, you know? And right. then finally, like there's situations where like, uh, I think that this, this new group that he has called the Rose City Nationalists, they end up allegedly like putting flyers on Proud Boys cars or in front of their houses and kind of like putting it in like a video. Um, and like, so really end up kind of like saying like, hey, we're on your turf kind of thing. And so it just finally like, you know, in Telegram and Twitter, it just sort of boils over and probably like, if we see you again, it's on site, basically. Like, right. don't show up in our town again. And they show up and like, there's a video of like Casey, like, we got to go talk to the normies. And like, we're going to walk over to uh, all the, to like, to <laughs> these guys who threatened to beat us up. And then what do you know? And it's like right after that Casey had been kicked out of the um, Northwest Nationals Network, there may have been some motivation where he's trying to create some news for himself, trying to make himself a hero, trying to prove something. And it ends up his guys get beat up, you know, quite a bit. Uh, but it ends up like kind of, yeah, catapults into kind of this, this national level. But we haven't heard much from him nationally, uh, much from him necessarily recently. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what he's been doing. I did see that he had been like, went on some event with former Patriot Front members, some joint exercise with Patriot Front. So it, it does seem like that he still has, still on relatively good terms with Patriot Front, but even the neo-Nazi, you know, kind of groups didn't want him to be a part of their club necessarily. Like he had this tendency to really like piss off everyone around him. Right. And that's what came through the article was that this was just not the most likable person you ever want to run into. And he definitely had, you know, some, some behavioral issues. And a lot of that could be explained by the fact that the guy had a really rough background growing up and had made some really dubious life choices as a result mm -hmm. of that. But at yeah. the same time, this is a guy that if he's going to be this much of a loose cannon, you can't necessarily have him in your group. It makes sense. Yeah. I think you can recognize the rough background, but also reckon and like be sympathetic. I think you can be, and I, I'm actually sympathetic and I'm really, I'm, I'm genuinely sad for Casey. Right. I'm genuinely sad for him. Because like he had a really rough life growing up. A lot of people did. And then like he is able to escape some of that, but he ended up falling into some really, really dark places. 
you know, it's like the kind of thing my mom would read and be like, he needs Jesus, you know, kind of like, like he <laughs> needs to find a way to like find and also a way to like to deal with all that anger. Right. And to be and like, be absolutely clear, a lot of people grow up in poverty and do not become white nationalists, right? Yeah, it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse, but it is something to really like, as people sometimes accuse reporters of humanizing monsters or humanizing people that are really bad. But I actually think that's vital because we're all human and like showing that we're all made of the same stuff that a monster can come from, from anywhere, but also like, like we have that capability inside of us. I think it's really, really important to like communicate with journalism. This isn't some different species. This is like, these are humans that are able to go in some really dark directions. And we've had a lot of people on the podcast who have said essentially the same thing, that not only part of what gets these people in the cases that they break from it and walk away, to walk away is getting them to see the humanity around them in these other people. But it's also helped people like we had a guy named Bjorn Eiler on the show not too long ago who um, was one of the victims of the Oslo shooting, Anders Breivik. He Mm -hmm. came face to face with Brevik. Brevik Mm -hmm. put a gun on him and pulled the trigger and the gun jammed. So he's very lucky to be alive. And he realizes this and he realized seeing him in court that this is a human being. This is not the devil. This is some guy who had Mm -hmm. issues and made Mm -hmm. terrible choices as a result of his issues and not necessarily somebody Mm -hmm. you're going to forgive, but this isn't somebody that you're going to put up on some magic pedestal and think, oh, this is, you know, some untouchable force of evil. This is another guy who made terrible choices. And I think that also gets to the idea that, you know, we are all human beings here. We are all walking each other home, as Ram Das mm-hmm. once said. And yeah. we've got some really terrible people that are making awful choices, but mm-hmm. we still have to live with them. Well, even like, I mean, I, I, I interviewed um, Representative uh, Jenny Graham, who um, I talked to her. So her sister was killed by the Green River Killer. Oh, wow. And she ended up like like sitting down with him in prison and having a conversation with him. And it was, I think, really important for her because I kind of coming to the same conclusion of like, like you're this person who's caused untold damage, but I can also, I can simultaneously be horrified and outraged at you, but also like feel like a kind of a sense of of love for you as a human. And I think that's that's vital for us to sometimes come with come to terms with. You know, I have a loved one whose um, sister was in the Moses Lake uh, school shooting. Right. And she ended up writing a, a letter to to him in prison. You know, I think it's just so vital sometimes for us to confront these people that have done these awful things and, and really to sort of rap, grapple with that, that aspect, right? And that's the thing is that can I, I don't want to be an apologist for any of these people, but I also don't want to just, you know, I want to understand the the nuance and the humanity behind everyone. Right, right. I mean, we've all met those people. We've all dealt with them. I mean, I remember when I was 17 years old, I was dating a girl who knew a guy from way back named Timmy Carver, who was a skinhead who was convicted of a hate crime in Spokane Mm -hmm. and ended up doing about, I think, three to four years in prison for that. And Timmy was not the smartest guy you ever want to run into. And I remember Mm -hmm. being very intimidated when she introduced me to him. I'm like, oh, fuck, this is that skinhead that was in prison. This is the guy that beat the guy down. Uh, But he had gotten away from all of that while he was in jail and was just trying to live life at that point. And at what point do you say you can come back into society now? You know, are you going to hold this against the guy for the rest of his life? He did his time. He's not doing Mm -hmm. it anymore. He figured out whatever he needed to figure out in prison. And Mm -hmm. now he's just trying to be a human being. When do you see the redemption 
Yeah, and that's something that like Liz Brunig has written about. I think she's the Atlantic now, but like really, really great about like the question of of you know, especially for the left, how does the left like where is the the path for redemption for not just criminals, but people that have like you know been racist and things like that? What right. is the path forward? And there's been guys like um, I don't know if you've had Evan McLaren on your podcast at all. He'd be great to talk to. Okay, write that down, Evan McLaren. Cool. He was a guy who was with. Identity Europa and like a former white nationalist who'd kind of really, I mean, like, like Katie McHugh had kind of really turned, right. turned around and kind of really sort of has been like very, very into opposing kind of that movement and very, very explicit about it. I mean, I come from like that, that Christian background, right? Which believes that like repentance, you know, you, you, you truly repent and turn your life around and like, you're as good as, as good as new, right? Like that, like there is a, there is a, right. a, a real path for redemption. There's got to be that, but also like leaven it with the journalist cynicism, right? Those two things have got to always be intention, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, somebody like a Katie could possibly repair some of the harm that she feels like she caused by turning, mm-hmm. you know, what she had in the way of documentation over to people who could use it. And you see that and you go, okay, that's admirable. But what about a guy who really never had any of that, who was just basically, you know, a street thug that happened to get pointed in the right direction beyond being a decent human being going forward and talking to kids about why that was such a bad idea. What more do you want this guy to do? You know, it's not like he's got some vast cache of information that he can turn over or anything. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a real, yeah, it's, it's a real, like, as, as, but as, as long as you're like continually, and there's a guy who is one of Matt Shea's allies uh, named Jay Pounder, who ended up becoming like, it's really key source for a lot of the Matt, Matt Shea stuff and speaking out against it. And, you know, he was still, unlike Katie, uh, he's still a real uh, conservative. In fact, during COVID, there's times where it's like, oh, is he kind of sliding back into some of this stuff? Right. And so it's a real tension there, kind of continually in, in play there. Right. So one thing that you mentioned, you were talking about how Casey Knutson split off from some of these other groups like Patriot Front and moved into a more one would say hardcore model with his Rose city nationalists group. We seem to be seeing a lot of these splits happening pretty frequently these days with the trend shifting to an active club model of these small cell groups that are explicitly training for a potential race war, but they always seem to be remaining a part loosely affiliated of, like you said, the Northwest nationalist network or something kind of beyond that. This really reminds me of um, an essay entitled Leaderless Resistance. It was written by a guy named uh, Louis Beam, who was a former Klansman, white supremacist, member of the Aryan Nations. Louis was a member of like all of these groups. And during the 80s and 90s, whenever any of this stuff was going on, he was right there either in the background or right specifically standing there saying that the idea that we would have these small activist cells, they would be harder to neutralize. They would be more effective against an enemy like the United States government. Do you think this is something that these guys are going to continue going forward? They seem to be having a certain amount of success with this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's continuing. Like this is a very, what they call white nationalism 3.0, which is sort of like a, like Patriot front. You might consider white nationalism, like, 2.0 and some of the Charlottesville groups, like some of these really big organized groups that are like still internet savvy and using the internet to recruit. But this is kind of more of what they call 3.0, which is like you have this network of disparate groups. For example, like Casey's club is not actually like 
an active club. It's more modeled after NSC. Um, I think one three, is it one three one? Maybe that's the, um, yeah. One three one. Yes. And I just don't want to confuse it with the, the uh, Star Trek, um, like the, <laughs> the label on the enterprise, but the, yeah. So NSC one three one, he's like, uh, is the new kind of like a neo-Nazi group. And mainly his thought is involved exercise as much exercise as is involved active clubs, but all these sort of different groups that are sort of networking together and they're using telegram in this really fascinating way where like, they're all like continually cross promoting each other and funneling each other. And like one group goes down and another emerges. And so, you know, trying to like combat this, it's like you're trying to fight a Hydra and, you know, no matter how many heads you cut off more are sprouting in their place. And so it's a real, real definite challenge. And I would say actually even like a bigger risk in terms of the potential for violence, because a lot of these groups like Patriot Front has a motivation not to necessarily pursue violence because that can get in the way. But the more you have these kind of these yahoos running around that are sort of loosely affiliated with these groups, they're kind of on their own terms. That's where you can get real dangerous kind of aspects. So like in, in one sense, like individually, they're, they're so kind of weak and, and not very strong, but like the culmination can be, can be concerning. Right. And when you get more and more of these guys parroting the accelerationist, no political solution rhetoric, it becomes the idea of might as well go do something crazy because that's what they want. Yeah. And that's how I kind of ended my thing, but we're like, Casey was, hadn't really necessarily gotten to that point, but it felt like some of his, maybe his members had of what you have more towards acceleration. We said there's no political solution. And so like the only thing that will change things is to really destroy things, like actually like commit violence, actually commit terrorism. Right. And that that'll be the spark that will actually create, you know, the change in the society we need. And we've seen multiple mass shooters who like are afraid of the great replacement, which is something that Casey's afraid of too, which is sort of funny because like, you know, you have Casey who's really upset and offended by the idea of white privilege, who's simultaneously afraid that the changing demographics of America will mean that he'll lose the privilege that he has by being a member of the racial majority, right? Like it's right. it's these things that are kind of contradictory. Like to believe in, to be afraid of the great replacement is to also necessarily inherently believe in white privilege, right? You're, you have a privilege that you're going to lose if you're no longer a part of the majority. Right, right. So you wrote a really great piece recently for the Inlander entitled let my aged wisdom and accrued cynicism guide you young reporter. And it gets back to what we were talking about, about humanity. There's one piece of advice that you gave that just absolutely nailed it. And I'm going to quote it here. Both reporters and activists love to argue about what precise words to use for specific groups. That's fine. But nobody has ever become more sympathetic to a homeless person merely because you refer to them as houseless or a person experiencing homelessness. But Tell that person's story with all of its messiness and humanity. That's when the readers actually care. And this, in my opinion, really gets to the point of what we're trying to do here. And that's to get people to care about these things and people that we're covering. And you did a really great job putting this into action with the story you wrote about Ryan Cook, who was a father from San Diego, and his son, Seamus Galligan, who was living on the streets of Spokane. How do we get people to stop missing the forest for the trees, do you think, on this one? Yeah. And in a, in a sense, I mean, I don't know. I, I think sometimes it's, it's almost the, I think sometimes the challenge is that people see the, see too much of the forest and not enough of the tree in the sense of like, and, and, and it, just reversing that in the sense of like, people will see homelessness as these, these unwashed masses as this 
this kind of this natural disaster that's lapping up on our shores mm-hmm. and really not digging in as much to the individual, right? And so we're really digging into, I was really wanting to dig into this individual with this really, really messy and sad story. And the fact that his dad is, you know, had come to Spokane looking for his homeless son and trying to find his homeless son and walking and trying to, you know, communicate with people. This guy who's this, you know, tech executive in, in San Diego, who is, you know, had all the things in the world, but like, it felt to me like this, you know, somewhat of the story of the prodigal son. We're like just desperately wanting your, your kid to like come home alive. What good is all of that stuff if you don't have that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, I think, the, the key. And, and I think one of the things I, I and the, the reaction from both conservatives and liberals to the story was really, really positive and heartening. I think because it wasn't necessarily coming to a clear conclusion and it wasn't clear conclusion in terms of here's the solution and it was was showing kind of how messy this situation is where like a lot of these things these these interventions didn't work and maybe you know for right. conservatives can read it and say hey maybe this guy needs maybe like sending the guy to prison was a good thing but also you can read it and say like like hey this guy just needs love this guy's humanized this guy's not some trash that we should just like you know this guy has a dad and has people who love him and every single one of these people has people out there somewhere they didn't hatch from eggs they have yeah. people. In that story, as I'm writing it, like there was originally a conclusion where the original conclusion as I'm writing it, because I don't know what's going to happen. The original conclusion is I, you know, show up and he doesn't show up at the bus stop and he's gone and we don't know where he is. And um, maybe, you no, know, he gets off at Sacramento and it's a city of this large. And you kind of pull back and you show the mass of, of like how big LA is. Right. Is, I think it was in LA. We stopped, you know how big this LA area is and he's lost that we may never know where he is. And I was just so happy that I was so happy to have that, that happy ending for now ending. Right. Cause like, that's the thing is I don't know what's happened with, with, with Seamus and I'm almost afraid to ask. Yeah. There is that sense of like the story ended very happily. We have to hope it kind of stayed that way. Yeah. And, and, and I haven't necessarily reached out, but it's also the fact is, is that like a lot of cases, just knowing the way that these things go, like it, a lot of times these things end up being kind of heart crushing ultimately. And I think what you have to do as a, as a parent is, you know, continually allow when you have a, you're a parent of a homeless person, uh, continually allow your heart to be broken. Um, and that's what it, that's what it's like. But that's a lot of times what, what sometimes what love is, true love is. Right. And I don't know, I, I just found it really inspirational, even from like a, Almost like, you know, they, they weren't, they're not like religious people, but it, it felt like a story that felt genuinely moving in like a religious sense because it it was just so much about just the, the pure love and heartbreak. And, you know, and I talked to a guy um, who actually was interviewed by Claire Goforth recently. It was a guy who uh, ended up showing up in, in both of her pieces, but had actually been a part of, I think it was been a part of the punk scene in, in Coeur d'Alene, but he had played with Seamus in a band and had like, was sort of this kind of lefty activist sort of guy, but like, was like hoping that they would end up, you know, transformed there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because you see these stories and you, you think everybody's got one, every one of these people that you see in these horrible circumstances, be it, you know, experiencing homelessness, be it hooked up with some really terrible Nazi group you find yourself thinking it didn't have to go that way. There was a point where this could have 
changed. And there's a point where this could go a better way. I mean, having talked to formers, having talked to people who've helped get people out of those movements, losing the hope Mm -hmm. is the one thing that you just can't ever do. Yeah. And uh, so much of it's related to, that's why the thing is so complicated. So much of it's related to shame in the sense of like, like this in talking to Seamus just about his, um, just sort of, I mean, about his sort of, why are you, why are you, what about self-destructive tendencies? And a lot of it's like, you know, like he doesn't want to ask for help because it's, it's humiliating, embarrassing for him. So like, it's one of those things where some of his people like rather sleep out in the cold and the misery because they don't want the humiliation of asking their dad to come home, to, to be yeah. able to come home. That's such a, a, a powerful thing where sometimes I think we think about the um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? This idea that you need shelter and that you need like these things before these, these, these higher order concerns like um, safety and security can be met. But the fact is, is that, that sometimes people will sacrifice shelter and safety for their own self-conception, their idea of shame, that kind of thing. Right, right. And that's a fascinating concept because it upends a lot of what we currently think we know about how all this stuff works, but it happens over and over and over. We see this frequently where people make that choice rather than go where we think they should go on the Maslow pyramid. They end up going to the, I don't want people to think badly of me. So it's interesting how that keeps continuously coming up. Yeah. So how can people support you in the work that you're doing? You should follow Investigate West. So you can go to Investigate West. I, in, I think it's INVW.org, INVW.org. Uh, right. And they can um, you know, follow all of our writing there. And, and also like send me tips. You can find me on Twitter and find my signal there. See, shoot me a DM or a signal message or just even an email. And I'm really looking to try to do a better job of, in particular, covering the the kind of the radical left, because I've been covering Spokane for so long, which didn't really have a radical left. I haven't been very adept at that. But I really want to make sure I'm being as rigorous covering the left as I am the right and, and kind of all the nuances there. And there's some people that are really good, but I do see like a gulf in covering that scene, which I think is, is harder in a lot of ways than covering the radical right. Right. To be clear, I'm not conflating the two, but I think both are worthy of of rigorous, critical, and, and aggressive scrutiny, right? And, and I think you guys have been good about that. Because there's bad people. There's there's people who are really awful on both sides. Yeah, and you you talked about that with Spencer Sunshine recently. Yeah. that That's a, that's a case as well. And people criticize me for not having written about the left and, and like all, I think it's a, it's a fair criticism. Like that there's, there's, I, I would like to do more of that. Not because like, because I do believe there's stuff to write about there, not because mm-hmm. there's, you know, I'm not making up anything there, but yeah. So just shoot me, shoot me tips. And that's the, that's the best way to support me is with information. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on today. Appreciate your time. This has been a very fascinating discussion. I'm glad that we got to talk some of this stuff out. Yeah. Always good to talk to a fellow North central grad, you know, red and black and all that. Yeah. And we didn't even have to talk. We talk about uh, Dave Riley or the other things. That was, there's so much there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really interesting place to grow up if you want to learn what the rest of the world is mm-hmm. like to some extent. Spokane gives you a very interesting perspective on life. Yeah. Spokane is Spokane's great. It has a lot of challenges, but I've always sort of loved it. And I, I don't know. I'm a person who will love wherever I'm at and it, you know, whether it was, you know, Linwood or Salk middle school or North central high school or Spokane, Washington or the Inlander or, you know, Oh my God, you went to Salk too. Yeah. So absolutely. No, that I, I ended up writing as a junior. This is how nerdy I was. I wrote a parody of, cause the Phantom Menace had come out 
when I was like in, in middle school. So I wrote like this like really long parody of the Phantom Menace called Salk Wars set in set in my middle school with janitors fighting with push prooms. And that was and sold it to other kids. And that was that was sort of my first real writing work. Uh, wow. So, yeah. That was kind of who I was as a, as a kid. So, and am today in some ways. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, hey, thank you for stopping by today, Daniel. You have a great rest of your day. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at GrizzaBJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNWPod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.